When it comes to morality, how often do you draw a hard line? How often do you, do you see something that's wrong, some moral issue, and you think, there's a line here that we need to draw, and this line needs to be a hard line, and you never cross that line. I think we all do this, right? And we see it everywhere. We draw lines because we know that we don't want to cross the line. And if we cross that line, we know that we'll be in sin. You don't want to be in sin. You want to be anything but in sin, right? So you want to stay on the righteous side of the line. And so you draw a hard line. But one of the problems with drawing a line is that when you draw that line, you begin to focus in on the line. And not only do you focus in on the line, but anything on the righteous side of that line is totally cool, right? Like, I can get away with a lot as long as I have this line here. And so oftentimes what we do is we draw a line and we run up to the line. And we play around on the line. And we might even dance a little bit on the line. And we get used to being right on the line. And we get so used to being on the line that oftentimes we just move the line over a little bit. Because, after all, I'm, I'm on the line, and, and I'm not in sin. And we just get used to, like, what, what might have disgusted us at one point no longer is disgusting. So we just move the line. And we keep moving the line. So that's one of the problems with drawing a line in the sand, or drawing a line, drawing a hard line. I think another one of the problems with drawing a line is, where's your focus? When you draw a line, your focus is no longer on God, but your line, your focus is on the line. And you begin to believe that as long as you stay on this side of the line, then you're righteous. As long as I stay over here, I'm righteous, and the people over there, those are the unrighteous people. The people that have stepped over that line, kind of gross, maybe a little bit yucky. But I'm on this side. I'm good. So we love to draw a line. We love to run up against the line. We love to focus in on the line. And that's what legalists like to do. Last week, I, I mentioned that we are all recovering legalists. I think every single one of us struggles with legalism to a certain extent. Every single one of us, because the world's operating system is legalism. The world's operating system says you have value based on your thoughts, based on what you can produce, based on your works, makes you more or less valuable. And since we are surrounded by this system, we all are recovering from this system. God's grace says you are valuable because God created you. You are valuable no matter how disgusting and despicable your sins are. You have value because God created you. That's God's grace. But legalistic systems say you're only as valuable, you're only as righteous as your works. And so that's a legalistic system, to draw a line. And we draw lines everywhere, and we see this all over in our culture. People drawing lines and thinking they're more righteous because they're on one side, and you're less righteous because you're on the other side. 
And Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, directly refutes this idea. It's not about drawing lines. So we've been studying this. Uh, following has been our, uh, our sermon series. We've been studying the Sermon on the Mount. And if we remember, Jesus began this sermon by flipping the idea of who is blessed upside down. The Pharisees, and, and in that day, the culture believed that if you were wealthy, if you never had any trials in your life, you were just more connected with God. If you were spiritually rich, you were just more connected with God. Therefore, you were the ones that were blessed. You were the righteous ones. And so Jesus begins by directly refuting this with the Beatitudes. So he begins this sermon with the Beatitudes. He directly refutes this idea of who is blessed. He directly refutes the idea of let's make a deal theology. Let's make a deal theology It goes kind of like this. God, if I do these things, then you will do this thing. God, if, if I'm good enough, then you will do these things for me. And we kind of put God in a box. And oftentimes we have this let's make a deal theology without even realizing we have let's make a deal theology. So the Pharisees, the religious people of that day, had let's make a deal theology, and they believed they were more righteous. They had drawn a line, and they were on the righteous side of the line, unlike those evil sinners that were on the other side of the line. So he ends the Beatitudes with a warning that you will be persecuted. For his sake. If you are following Christ, you will be persecuted. And then he gets into, in the midst of this persecution, you can be an influencer. Not with lots of followers on Instagram, but by pouring into the community that is around you. By having personal relationships here, in this community, you can influence the world. Now, some in the crowd and the religious leaders, if we remember, the, if you picture the Sermon on the Mount, there's Jesus, and he's preaching to his disciples that are really close, and they're believers, they're followers already, they're following, they've made the decision that they're going to follow Christ. And then beyond that is the multitude. The multitude, the crowds, they haven't made up their decision yet. They like the miracles that Jesus is doing. They love the miracles. They're not quite sure about the message. They're not quite sure if they want to submit their life to him. They're not quite sure if they want to follow. And then beyond that is the religious leaders. And so he's preaching this sermon to the disciples and the multitudes, and then there's the religious leaders, and he's directly confronting the legalistic religion of the Pharisees. And so that's, if you picture that on the Sermon on the Mount, that's what's going on. And so at this point, the multitude and the Pharisees might be asking some questions like, hey, this is what we've been taught. This is the tradition. And you're directly confronting this. Are you undermining Scripture? And so that introduces us to that next section, in verse, starting in verse 17, where Jesus says, Do not think I came to abolish or undermine or disobey Scripture, but he came to fulfill it. And what that whole point is, that all of Scripture leading up to that point, so all of the Old Testament is pointing towards Christ. That's what it's all about. The, the scripture is there. So he is, he's essentially saying, I have all of the authority when it comes to scripture. So there are a lot of religious leaders that are going to give you interpretations. Sometimes they're right. Sometimes they're wrong. But what Jesus is saying is that he has the ultimate authority when it comes to interpreting scripture. When it comes to really understanding scripture, 
Jesus is the one with authority. And he gives this thesis statement. I think this is the thesis statement of the entire sermon. We'll keep coming back to it over and over again in verse 20, and that is, if your righteousness does not exceed those of the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders of the day, then you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now think about that for a second again. You've got the disciples, the followers already. You've got the multitudes who always looked up to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious leaders. They were the ones you you were striving to be like. And they would have thought, "If if the Pharisees can't even do it, how on earth will I ever make it? If the Pharisees can't even do it, then I have no hope. And the Pharisees, who thought they've already made it, would have thought, how dare you? Don't you know I am righteous? Don't you know I've drawn the the line? I've stayed on this side of the line. How dare you ever confront me about any type of righteousness? And that's what religious legalism always does is it makes people either desperate or prideful. You are desperate when you realize that you can't make it, when you're not good enough. When you have sinned, and you realize your sin, and you realize that you'll never be good enough, you become desperate. But it also puffs up. Because when you think you've made it, When you think you're good enough, unlike those heathen sinners on the other side, those yucky people over there, then you become prideful and puffed up. Legalism always produces either desperation or pride. And so Jesus, his thesis, is a rebuttal of this idea that you are good enough. And as the authority of Scripture, he will be showing us why that is. So the next few weeks, we'll be covering uh, his his, uh, exposition of this. And he's going to use kind of a formula that was popular in that day by the Pharisees. And it was, you have heard, but I say. This was a way of introducing what the religious leaders of the day uh, have taught, or the tradition that was taught. So you have heard it said, and then then they'd say what was taught. And then they'd give their correction. But this is what I say. So this is the formula. You have heard it say, and then you'd quote some Old Testament passage, and either the wrong teaching of that passage, or in some cases, the wrong teaching was just so clear that it was such a part of the culture that they wouldn't even have to like clarify what the wrong teaching was. You've heard it say, they'd quote the Old Testament, and everyone knew what, every, what, what the tradition was around that saying. And then they would say, but here's what I say. And they would give the correct teaching, or at least what they thought was the correct teaching. Now, Jesus gives us this formula, and since he has the ultimate authority of interpretation of Scripture, we know that his correction is the true correction. So we're going to go into each one of these deeper explanations of this formula through the next couple weeks. But I think it is important before we dive in to know that Jesus is not creating new meaning. He's not looking at this Old Testament scripture and saying, this is a different 
meaning of the scripture. You've heard it said, do not murder, but I'm going to give you a whole new twist. No, instead, Jesus will give us the expounded meaning of the text. He's actually going to go deeper into the meaning instead of just giving us a glossed over meaning, instead of just giving us a shallow meaning, he's actually going to really get into the meaning. And so this begins in uh, chapter 5, verse 21, but we'll back up to verse 20 because like I said, I want to connect this thesis statement over and over again. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So Jesus fulfills the law. Everything up to this point, or everything throughout the Old Testament, is pointing to Jesus. This also means that it is Jesus, not Moses, not the tradition, not the religious leaders of the day, who have authority on interpretation. That is why at the end of the sermon, Matthew explains that the multitudes were amazed because he taught with authority. So Jesus will then give what the law intends, which is pure righteousness. But in a culture that had to draw lines, these lines had made them focus more on their behavior than on God. So Jesus gives this shocking statement in verse 20 and then uses the next section to explain what pure righteousness really looks like. So you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable in judgment. This is actually a teaching coming straight from Old Testament text. We've got Exodus 20, 13, Exodus 21, 20, Deuteronomy, or 21, 12, I should say, Deuteronomy 5, 17, and Deuteronomy 17, 8 through 13, that all kind of, this is what they say. The summary of all this is basically, you shall not murder, and if you do murder, you will be punished. And then actually it gives a lot of different outlines of how the court proceedings should take place and how the judgments should be carried out. But the Old Testament law wasn't the problem. The problem is the assumption made by the super special religious people of the day. That because they had never committed a murder, they were righteous. They were the good guys. They had drawn a line, and that line was, you shall not kill. That was a commandment. You shall not murder. I shouldn't say kill. There's a difference between killing and murder, and we won't get into all that right now, but there is a difference. You shall not murder. So there's the line. Boom. We got the line. Now I can do whatever I want, as long as I stay on this side of the line. I can hate people. I can treat people abusively. 
I can insult them. I can do whatever I want as long as I stay over here. So the problem wasn't with the law. The problem was with the focus that they had or the interpretation that they had of the law. That just because they didn't murder meant that they were righteous. And I think a lot of people today have a similar attitude. In fact, we hear it all the time, right? Hey, it's not like I killed someone. It's not like I went around murdering people, right? Who cares if I abused them? I didn't kill them. Who cares if I have hate in my heart and I called them names? It's not like I murdered anyone. And we have the the murder as the most extreme, and because I'm not committing the most extreme act, I'm good. I'm still righteous. Don't bother me. Who cares about my heart? Who cares if I have attitudes that lead to murder? I didn't. And that's all that counts. And Jesus is going to refute that heart posture. So I'm going to use this term heart posture quite a bit. And when I use this term heart posture, it basically means uh, like the whole person. So it it means your, your thoughts. It means your attitude. It means your emotions, your desires. That's all wrapped up in this heart posture that it's okay for me to hate someone as long as I don't actually kill them. So there's an emotion and a desire and a thought process that believes that as long as you don't cross that line, you got the line drawn, as long as you don't cross that line, you're still righteous. And what Jesus is saying is that isn't it. Jesus corrects it. We pick up in verse 22. But I say, so we have, you have heard it said, but I say. Now Jesus gives us that correct teaching to you that whoever or everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So here we have three ways that people cause offense. Three ways that people, Jesus is equating to actual murder. You've heard it say, do not murder. But I say, these three offenses will will produce a a judgment just as the same as murder. And I think it should be noted that all of these offenses aren't just to other people. All of these offenses are actually to the person that you're offending, to the community, and to God. Oftentimes, we like to minimalize our sin. Oftentimes, we like to make it look like our sin really isn't that bad. Or it's like just just my own personal thing. I got my own sin over here. And we don't realize that our sin actually affects the community. Our sin affects way more people than we realize. Our sins always go farther and does more damage than we ever intended it. So here we have three different ways to cause offense that Jesus says are equal or on the same plane as murder. And the first one that he says is angry. To be angry with your brother. Now I don't think that just to be angry is the sin here. Paul actually tells us to be angry 
and do not sin. Jesus was angry, and we know that Jesus was without sin. So it's not just that anger is a sin, and I think it's helpful to to understand that there are two Greek words for anger. One is phumos, which means like a quick anger or a reaction or like a quick flare-up that you can control. So like, let's say, for example, somebody walks up to you and slaps you in the face. There's a, there's a really quick emotion, right? There's a, there's a fight or flight system that kicks into gear. I don't think Jesus is saying that's a sin. The word he actually uses is orgazomai, which is like a festering anger. And what's interesting, too, is that it's in a present, it's a present participle, which could be translated, whoever is remaining angry. Or we could say, whoever is holding a grudge. Whoever has let anger so overcome them that bitterness has taken root. This is the issue. It's not a quick flare-up. It's not an anger that you quickly get under control. It's when you begin to hold a grudge. When you begin to let it fester and it becomes bitterness. Now, did you catch that who it's against? It's against a brother. Whoever is angry with a brother. And this shows us that it is in light of of communal living. Now, I don't think Jesus would say that it's okay to be bitter against those who are not in your community. But that's not what he's addressing here. He's addressing having bitterness in the community. The community that is supposed to be salt and light to the world. A community that is supposed to be showing the world a better way. A community that is supposed to be breaking free from the world's operating systems. So how can we influence the world How can we show the world a better way when we're all holding grudges? When we've all let bitterness take root? So this sin is particularly offensive because it goes against everything God has created for this congregation. So the warning is stern and actually points to a heart that is going in a direction of murder. So you haven't murdered. Awesome. But you've got a heart that's going in that direction. The second offense is whoever insults his brother. So the Greek word for insults here is actually raka, and it means empty-headed. It can be translated as imbecile or blockhead or idiot. I'm still looking for the translation that gives it a blockhead. Whoever Whoever says to his brother, you blockhead. But usually we just call it insults. But, but we get the idea here, right? It's just an insult. It's just saying, thinking of your brother as a blockhead. It's calling your brother an idiot. And what's interesting here is if you call your brother a blockhead, if you call your brother an idiot, if you call your brother an imbecile, you will be liable to the council. The council here is the Sanhedrin. And you could think of the Sanhedrin as kind of like the Supreme Court. Could you imagine the Supreme Court taking up a case? He called me an idiot. I'm taking you all the way. We're going all the way to the Supreme Court. We'll see what happens then, buddy. 
I think Jesus is actually kind of is trying to get some laughs here. I mean, it's almost ridiculous. It's preposterous to think about the Supreme Court taking up a case of an idiot. Someone who's called an idiot. And Jesus is saying, but this reveals a heart that is on the same level as a murderer, though. So I think he's, I think he's kind of making light. I think he's trying to bring some jokes because the next one, he really takes it home. The third offense is calling your brother a fool. Calling someone in the community a fool. The term here means to not only be empty-headed, but also immoral. To be going against God's moral principles. Throughout the Proverbs, there are warnings about being a fool. This insult, the insult goes from kind of a mild insult that could get a couple chuckles to attacking the very identity of a person. So the idea is you go from anger. You've let bitterness take root. And then you go from that to insulting, to just kind of writing them off, to mocking them. And then from mocking to attacking the very identity of the person. Each one of these has a corresponding judgment. As anger turns to insults, to attacks on character and the identity, the judgment is more and more vivid. So calling a brother a fool in, it results in judgment of the hell of fire. Now most of us think of the fire of hell. So it is the fire that's in hell. But this one is flipped around. It's hell of fire. And that's because it's a reference to a place called Gehenna. Gehenna was a dump that was right outside of Jerusalem. It's where people, you know, we have waste management or uh, skyline waste or, you know, all, all these other waste places that we just put our waste out there and we can forget about it. It comes and gets picked up. But they didn't quite have that. They had a place at the edge of town. It was a valley. And we won't get into the whole history of the Valley of Hinnom, but it was the place where the dump was. And they lit their, they lit their trash on fire. They burned their trash. And they would go to the edge of town, and everybody would just throw their trash up there. And so this fire constantly burned. It was always burning. And so that's actually became this picture of future judgment. So anytime someone would talk about the end of the world where God would judge all of the unrighteousness of the world, they would use the Valley of Hinnom. They would use the dump fire as the picture. And I think if we thought about the, a dump fire that was always burning, we would think that's not a pleasant place. I don't want to be there for all of eternity. And so it becomes a very good picture of, of future judgment. If you're picturing in your head, you don't want to go spend your life around all this stinky trash that's always on fire. It's going to be very uncomfortable. And so that's the picture that Jesus is painting here. When you call your brother Raka, when you say imbecile, then you're worthy of going to the fire that's in Hinnom. The term, uh, sorry, the term hell is Hanom, the fire. And then we get to the third judgment. 
Sorry, that was the third judgment. Uh, so, so that's the idea, is when you belittle people, when you make them to be a fool, then you're worthy of this future judgment. So Jesus gives a very stern warning. And not just about murder. Not just about drawing this line so that we could go dance on it. And we could still hate our brother. And we could still dehumanize our brother. But he gives this very stern warning about our very heart condition. Our hearts can become bitter and angry and begin to destroy the very salt and light community that God has created us to be. So Jesus gives us this warning in a masterful way. He doesn't just say, don't be angry. Well, I'm sure they've heard that before, right? I'm sure you've been told, don't be angry. And Maybe it caught. Oftentimes it doesn't. So Jesus gives this masterful teaching in a way that shows or reveals a very heart that leads to anger. So it starts with anger, and then it moves to name-calling. We don't think much of name-calling, but belittling people is a part of the dehumanizing process. It's so easy for us to just begin to call people names, not realizing that what we're actually doing is we're starting the dehumanizing process. When we belittle people, when we call them imbeciles, idiots, empty-headed, blockheads, what we're really doing is we're saying, your value is lesser than, because you're not smart like me. You don't have the wisdom that I have. So you're really just lesser than. And it begins the dehumanizing process. In war, military forces always dehumanize the other side. Because it makes much easier to kill people when they're not as human as you are. So that belittling begins the process of dehumanizing. And then they begin to attack the other person's character. So it moves from anger to bitterness to contempt, where you actually believe the other person is lesser than. Lesser than me. Because I drew this line, and I'm more righteous than you, you idiot. I think we see this in the church today all the time. We can become so angry about an injustice that we let bitterness take root. And we begin to call names. And we begin to have contempt for the others. And we may not have ever picked up a weapon. We may not have ever killed the other person. We may not have ever killed anybody on the other side of the political spectrum. But we have a heart posture that is committing murder. We have a heart posture that is absolutely destroying our communities. And it begins with letting anger fester and to become bitter. So you're not a murderer. Great. But have you ever let anger fester in your heart? 
Have you ever become bitter? Have you ever called someone an idiot, an imbecile, a blockhead? Have you ever thought of others with contempt? Well, maybe you're not so righteous as you think you are. I think this affects every single human that has ever lived. And right about here, every single person is saying, well, count me out. Then he gives us a conjunction. The conjunction is what to do. So if, so if you've done this, so if you've gotten to this place, what do you do? So if, this is what you do. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. What's really amazing about this, and this is how serious Jesus takes reconciliation. So we got to talk through this a little bit. He's in Galilee. Galilee is way up north. There's only one temple that they can make a sacrifice at, and that that temple is in Jerusalem. So where he's preaching at right now is about a 120-mile journey that they're going to have to hike to get to Jerusalem to, to make this sacrifice, right? So he's saying, hey, you've made this hike. You've made the journey. You're down at the temple. You're getting ready to offer your sacrifice. And now you remember. Now, this is what also an interesting part of this. He's not saying, now you remember that someone offended you. He's saying, and now you remember that you have offended someone else. You are the one that has caused offense. What do you do? You go through your, your sacrificial place, right? And then when you got the time, when you eventually make your way back up to Galilee, that's when you become reconciled, right? No. He says, leave it. Leave it right there. And take that 120-mile journey back up. Be reconciled. Go to him and say, hey, look, I caused an offense, and I'm sorry. Be reconciled first. And then... Make your 120-mile trek back down and then make your, uh, your sacrifice. Now, another interesting part about this is sac- the sacrificial system was an intense part of their worship. It was a way that they worshiped God. And he's saying, look, put aside your worship for a second and go and be reconciled. That shows you how important reconciliation is to Jesus. Oftentimes we have this backwards. We think, I got to go worship. And I think we do this for a couple different reasons. One is it feels much better to worship than to confess that we wronged someone, right? Man, I love getting here and I love singing and it just gives me the good emotional feels. I'm connected with God. I mean, God is a God of grace. God is a God of love. I know that I can come in here and sing worship and be connected with God and feel good. And that feels a whole lot better than going to someone and saying, you know what? I did something wrong. I made a mistake. Admitting and confessing that we've done something wrong does not feel good. So we want to emphasize oftentimes, we want to emphasize worship over reconciliation. But I think the other reason why we want to emphasize worship over reconciliation is there's a vulnerability with pursuing reconciliation. 
There's a vulnerability when you come to someone and you say, hey, look, I was hurt. When you did this thing, I got hurt. That's being vulnerable with someone else. And it's also being vulnerable when you say, look, I was wrong. I offended you. That's being vulnerable. And we don't know how the other person is going to react. We don't know. When we come in vulnerability and we say, hey, I was hurt, we don't know if someone's going to rub it in, right? I got hurt the other day. And they say, well, you should be hurt because you're an idiot. Or when I say, man, I was wrong. I'm really sorry. Well, you should be wrong because you're an idiot, right? We don't know. And actually what has happened a lot in the world's operating system, because the world operates in legalism and values and hierarchies and structures, what happens a lot in the world is when we come and we be vulnerable with other people, they rub it in our face and they use it as a tool to manipulate. So we have been hurt over and over again in this world to being vulnerable. And eventually we come to this place where we say, I'm not doing it anymore. I'm not going to be vulnerable anymore because it's just too much pain. It's just too much hurt. So I'd much rather go to God and worship than ever be vulnerable with another human being again. And so we begin to put worship over any type of reconciliation. And what Jesus is saying in here is that reconciliation is so important because the community of God is so important that you put aside that sacrifice, which is an important part of your worship, and you trek 120 miles back to that guy, and you say, look, I offended you, I made a mistake, and I'm sorry. And you pursue reconciliation before you trek 120 miles back down for your sacrifice and continue in worship. It's pretty amazing the emphasis that Jesus is giving on reconciliation. The next example he gives is come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and be put in prison. Truly I say to you, who you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So it's really, the, the first example was Jesus emphasizing re- the reconciliation, right? Saying, hey, you guys don't actually value reconciliation, but reconciliation is very important. The second example is Jesus showing that not just reconciliation, but doing it quickly is important. Come to terms quickly with your accuser. Not just put it off. I'll, I'll do it sometime when I get around to it. I understand the fear of bringing an issue up to someone else. I understand the vulnerability. It doesn't always feel good. And so what we have a tendency to do is to put it off and to put it off. And what happens, the longer we put it off, the more it begins to fester. And the more bitterness begins to take root. So notice again here that it's not just the offended that is to pursue reconciliation but it's the person who has done the offense. It's the offender. 
And I think, once again, this stresses the importance of both parties to work towards reconciliation. This time, however, Jesus has them actually on the way to court. Maybe the offending party called the other an idiot, and so they're on their way to the Supreme Court because it's gone that far, right? But notice the progression. Judge, guard, prison. The prison here is a debtor's prison, and if someone was in a debtor's prison, or if someone was in debt, I should say, and they could not pay, they would be sent to prison until they or someone else could pay off the debt. I think what Jesus is getting at is resolve the issue quickly. The longer you take, the more time you have to let it fester, the more difficult it will become to heal the hurt. So we, as salt and light, are called to look different from the world. We are called to be reconciled to one another, to pursue reconciliation. I think one of the most important ways we can do this comes from the most used command in the New Testament. The most used command in the New Testament. Over and over and over again it is used, and it is, greet one another. In a smaller town like this, it is easy to have an offense, and you're at Sam's Club, and you see the offender, and you think, oh no. Let me duck into the bathroom until they're gone. And that will never produce reconciliation. Over and over again, we are told to greet one another. And as you see that person in Sam's Club, and you walk over, and you don't have to go into an in-depth conversation even. Just say hi. You'll be amazed at what God can do with just your obedience in greeting one another. So we are the salt and the light of the world. We are called to look different from the world. We are called to reconcile to one another, to get good at saying, that hurt. I'm hurt. To get good at being vulnerable with each other and to get good at forgiving each other, not holding the offense against the other. To stop trying to defend our actions, but say, you know, I'm sorry I hurt you. But I think the biggest takeaway from this section is you think you are good because you drew a line in the sand. The Pharisees thought they were good because they drew the line. They said, I've never killed anyone. I'm good. The legalist in all of us wants to know we are good because we draw a line in the sand and we stay on the righteous side of that line. The problem is that line will never stop us from sinning. The line will never actually make us good. Because what we do is we focus in on the line instead of God. And you cannot grow and you cannot mature in Christ if all you're ever doing is focusing in on behavior modification and sin. The only way to have a changed heart, the only way to live out the light and salt lifestyle Jesus calls us to, is to follow Jesus. It's to forget about drawing lines. 
It's to forget about saying, here's where we draw the line and I won't go beyond it. It's forget, forget the lines. Forget looking back at the sin and be so focused on Jesus that he actually changes your heart. You no longer have to think about, where do I draw the line? What, how much can I live in the gray? You think about Jesus, and you focus on Jesus. And the more you focus on Jesus, actually, the less you even come to the line, the more you actually go further and further away from the line. That's the only way. So Jesus is given the Sermon on the Mount, and he's given it to a culture that is steeped in legalism. And in legalism, you want to draw the line, and you want to know, what sins can I get away with, essentially? And Jesus is posing the question, Will you stick in your religious legalism, drawing lines so you can claim, I'm righteous, I haven't sinned like them? Or will you follow Jesus and be so focused on him, you don't even care about the lines? Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We all have legalistic tendencies, legalistic roots. We are all recovering legalists. And we all want to draw a line in the sand or draw a line and then say, hey, I can play on that line all I want. But we know that deep down inside we have hearts that are bent towards wickedness. And we pray that you would help us to be quick to forgive Help us to not let anger fester and turn into bitterness. And most of all, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be so focused in on you that we wouldn't even look back towards lines. In your name we pray. Amen.